But I think there's been this fear that exercise is somehow going to be dangerous. Uh, and it's quite the contrary. After that first day, when you, they say you have cancer, there's a new person born. You know, there's this thing called new normal. I, th I think they don't really maybe understand how much it's going to help them. Each patient and each survivor is going to be experiencing different side effects, different experiences. The positive is that it's, it's never too late. Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the REACH podcast. Today was a really cool chat with Dr. James Steele, who is the principal investigator at UK Active Research Institute. So James and a couple of his colleagues, James Fisher in particular, have put out some really interesting work, uh, kind of both conducting studies and, and summarizing and reviews, this whole idea of a minimal dose approach uh, to resistance training in inactive populations or even you know clinical populations. Those individuals who aren't training the way us active people think of training, that we try to get the most out of our training. And you know what is kind of the least you can do to gain some benefit um, that may be relevant in in terms of clinical outcomes or or just overall life. So we talk about this idea of a minimum frequency, but we also talk about the exercise selection and something that I've been really interested of late is this idea of multi joint versus single joint exercises in those who are inactive, and those you know who who train people. Um, you know, if you give something like a bicep curl and people will say, well, should I hold my hands, um, you know, to the sides or should I hold my hands in kind of this supinated uh, grip, you know, for elite, elite bodybuilders, maybe that makes a difference. But for people who are inactive, um, you know, it doesn't really make a difference. You can take that one step further and go, if someone is doing five to six compound exercises, does the addition, aside from correcting some sort of imbalance or, or, or movement dysfunction, does the addition of these smaller single joint exercises actually confer any benefit? So, you know, the work of these guys have really done a lot in recent years to change some of my perspective on how resistance training should be, could be prescribed and delivered. But they also talk a lot about this whole idea of measuring effort and, and the impact of that in terms of what uh, the resistance exercise prescription looks like in terms of people who who think they have x amount of reps left in the tank tend to actually underestimate that and they could have potentially a lot more left so again it's a really interesting conversation there and we kind of uh, have this more broader conversation and a really interesting one on the difference between uh, population guidelines of physical activity and actual implementation science in figuring out how to get people to reach those guidelines um, if you've seen a lot of you know a few different countries now have released uh, or are going to release different physical activity guidelines and have kind of consistently been dropping the standard or the minimum standard people should approach <clears throat> and we have this kind of really interesting talk about uh, should the guidelines stay as they are and maintain the standards that are required for a certain uh, amounts of fitness while also and concurrently uh, figuring out from an implementation perspective how to get people to reach those guidelines we talk about this whole idea of 
of how people respond to guidelines and and some people are put off some people are encouraged all that type of stuff so really cool conversations across the board um james is a very busy man and expert in a lot of this air these areas uh, so i really appreciate his time and insight and for all you listeners sit back and enjoy and we'll catch you next time so yeah you know as i said to you offline i i really appreciate and admire the work uh, that your group has been putting out over the last few years and um it's done a lot, particularly with this kind of minimal dose approach in challenging uh, my previous perspectives on how training should be designed, but also, um, I think, the broader field in general. So before we jump into all this stuff, um, give us a little background about um, who you are, what you're up to, and how you got interested in this space. Um, so so I first um, kind of got interested in sport and exercise more generally growing up. I was... Uh, as we were just discussing, uh, an athlete, albeit not a very good one. Uh, myself, growing up, I played basketball and uh, ran track um, and still try to do so nowadays. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I did my undergrad in applied sports science um, from 2007 to 2010 and uh, then went straight into a PhD, which was um, focused on exercise applications in chronic low back pain. Um, looking specifically at a kind of minimal dose resistance training type approach um, in that population. Um, So I did my PhD. It was uh, throughout my PhD that I started working closely with um, my colleague James Fisher. Um, And we both had um, interests primarily in resistance training as an exercise modality. Um, And we're kind of, you know, reading a lot of the literature at the time and and questioning a lot of the kind of... um, you know, t- traditional paradigms and the quality of evidence they were based on and so on and so forth. Um, and so I-, I finished my PhD in 2014 and I spent a few years, um, spent three or four years lecturing full time um, and researching as well at Southern University. Um, and now I'm actually in the, uh, just over a year ago, I switched to a kind of fractional contract here at Southern University. So I've got an associate professor post here um, where I just focus on research and supervising PhD students. Um, and now I'm also a principal investigator for um, UK Active's Research Institute. And UK Active is a, um, a not-for-profit body here in the UK that focuses on um, physical activity. Um, so they're kind of a, a sector-based organization. And I um, now lead the Research Institute there. But it's been interesting um, evolution, really, because I feel like... Um, you know, in a short space of time, I, I would have traditionally called myself an exercise physiologist. Um, you know, that was my primary interest. My PhD um, was a mixture of kind of exercise phys and uh, biomechanics. Um, I did a lot of work on um, gait analysis and, and stuff in my PhD as well. So had kind of heavy phys biomech background. Um, but over the past few years have... Um, as a result of kind of tangential interests around those areas, particularly with respect to resistance training. And as we mentioned offline, my kind of interest in this role of of effort, defining it, understanding how to measure it, um, what role it plays in exercise. I feel like I've kind of branched out into uh, psychology, uh, you know, perceptual motor skills based stuff as well. And and, and nowadays I feel like I'm kind of lost without a discipline. <laughs> so, so, so now I, I just work on the stuff that interests me and, uh, and focus more so on the kind of the research methods, study design, statistics and, and figuring out how best to answer interesting questions. That's huge. And, and certainly you've been making a lot of strides, particularly in that 
the whole push to develop more rigor on what we do. Let's backtrack a little bit. Let's start talking about this minimal dose stuff. And I suppose to to talk about it, let's clarify what you mean by a minimal dose approach in terms of um, program design. Okay, yeah, so that's a great question. I, I think, you know, um, traditionally most people have focused on the question of, you know, what's... Um, what, what do I need to do to get the to maximize response to get the, the the greatest response I can for whatever outcome it is they're interested in and you know most of the time for resistance training that's um, strength hypertrophy etc um, now I, I think you know as, as you discussed kind of previously with guys like Ian Lahart and stuff you know the quality of evidence in our field in general is is not great um, a lot of it's small samples a lot of it is um, you know, uh, inflated estimates of effect sizes based on those small samples and um, and there's a lot of coaching folklore and and all sorts of um, kind of confirmation bias that goes into studies that are designed how they're interpreted and so on and so forth and so I think there's um, you know there, there, there's no, no one's really sort of like looked at it and asked the question of you know what is the minimal I need to do to be able to actually get a meaningful change in these outcomes as opposed to the question of you know what's the maximum I can get away with so to speak and from my perspective you know I, I originally came at the question of the kind of minimal dose from the idea of looking at the quality of literature and and deciding whether or not I really felt it supported some of the uh, more traditional approaches that people argue for which are typically higher volumes higher frequencies training etc um, you know to optimize outcomes um, and I felt that the, the the evidence base isn't isn't as convincing for those kind of recommendations as it seems. Um, there may be an argument that can be made that those types of um, you know higher dose approaches could eke out small benefits. But then you get to the question of well, what is the meaningfulness of those benefits, and also what is the actual quality of evidence, and can we really be certain that those tiny effect sizes are really real um, let alone meaningful as well so i've kind of looked at the other end of the spectrum and, and taken much more interest in that and i think a lot of that has stemmed from the work i did kind of with chronic low back pain and you know working with any kind of clinical population they're not doing it because they're trying to maximize a, you know an aesthetic outcome or a performance outcome they're, they're they're doing it because they want to improve some aspect of their quality of life or improve their condition or whatever um, you know, it, it's like a different population. The the, the, the fitness guys and the girls and, and the, the, you know, the kind of bros and Instagram kind of uh, uh, tribe, you know, they're, they're, they're a unique population in and of themselves in terms of what their motivations and stuff are and what they're willing to actually do to try and possibly get a slightly greater outcome than what they might get with a more minimal dose-based approach. Um so when we're talking about minimal dose, I think we're really just talking about, you know, what is the minimal amount you can do to get a meaningful change in, um, you know, whatever outcome it is that you're looking at. And in the case of resistance training, it's typically strength, hypertrophy, power, etc. I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense for us then as well in this kind of exercise oncology space where we're working with people going through treatment um, and dealing with the consequences of that. Can we figure out what's the least they can do to to target outcomes of interest for us, which is potentially ameliorating treatment side effects, maintaining fitness rather than improving it during treatment for the most part. Um, but then thereafter, in terms of behavior changes, you said there's very few people that are actually inherently drawn to resistance training. So 
if their option is, well, I have to do three days a week or nothing, you know, can we give them a one day a week approach kind of thing? Um, but also yeah. in terms of the, the program selection. So let's kind of take both approaches where first maybe chat about the frequency concept and then we'll move more specifically into exercise selection. Yeah, sure. Because I was, as you were saying that, I was just thinking, thinking it would probably be worth kind of, you know, you, we talk about kind of exercise dose and most people think of that in terms of like the amount of exercise that you do, the volume, the, uh, the frequency. But if I think about it in, uh, with, um, uh, similarly to kind of like drug dosing, you know, you've got how often do you take the drug, which could be likened to the frequency with which you engage in any kind of exercise stimulus. Um, you've got the, um, the actual dose of the drug drug in terms of how much, you know, active ingredient or whatever it is, whatever the um, kind of active um, component is in the drug, which could almost be likened to the volume within a particular bout of exercise. But then you've also got the actual um, kind of um, quality of the active compounds as well, what the kind of um, pharmacokinetics of it actually are, which I suppose you could almost liken to the actual quality of the exercise stimulus within that bout, irrespective of the volume and the frequency of it and so on. And so when I think about it like that, I think of it in terms of, you know, you've got, you can broadly speaking, break up the exercise and stimulus into um, when you do it, what is the quality of what you do? How much within that individual bout do you actually need to do? And how frequently do you need to actually take that medicine, so to speak, um, to maintain, you know, gain those benefits? I love that because I've, I've heard exercise been and I've done it myself in terms of comparing it to a drug, but that level of detail and the comparators across um, is really, really interesting, particularly with the, the quality, I think, is is probably one of the more overlooked pieces, especially when we talk about this minimal dose approach. It has, it has to be quality if it's going to work. You could probably get away with half-ass and three days a week and get some benefit out of it. But if you're only doing a minimal dose approach, we have to have quality of effort in there as well. Absolutely, yeah. And and, and most of what we found is, you know, the the you can you can you can still produce uh, benefits with a low volume um, suboptimal approach in terms of effort um, and the quality of the actual exercise stimulus. But to really kind of get the most and get similar benefits out of a low uh, volume and low frequency approach you need to make sure that the quality of the actual exercise stimulus is there as well and from our perspective it seems to be or our, our thoughts on it are that that's based primarily around the effort that's required to engage in that exercise stimulus um and yeah we can kind of get on to talking about what you know, what we actually mean by that yeah and it it's it actually kind of neatly breaks it down into the kind of the sections of the podcast so let's start with in terms of a drug let's start with the frequency and what is kind of the evidence showing there in terms of um minimal dose optimal dose how many times a week should people train so when in our kind of like reviews of the literature and some of them are quite a little bit dated now um but i think the the most up-to-date literature still supports that as well in terms of the meta-analytic evidence uh, particularly around things like strength and, and hypertrophy is that you know frequencies of, of around about twice a week seem to be um uh, the best approach and um, but that frequencies of even once a week can still be similarly effective now whenever i'm looking at a lot of these uh this evidence i also try and think about how do we actually take that and um use those that that data which really is about efficacy 
um, you know, does um, a particular manipulation of, um, you know, the excise dose work when we kind of do it under supervised control conditions in a, you know, research-based setting versus um, effectiveness, you know, if we tell people to go away and do this, how well does it work? And uh, from experience in running kind of unsupervised excise interventions, um, if you tell people to do it once a week and they miss a week, then that's a big chunk of dosing that they've suddenly missed out on. Whereas if you ask them to do it twice a week, and even if once a week is going to potentially produce similar benefits for them, they're more likely to maintain, you know, a, a, an adequate dose of exercise in terms of the frequency with which they engage in it if they're doing it twice a week. And, and like you said, said before, it goes towards potentially forming longer term behavior change as well if they're doing it more frequently and making it more of a kind of part of their routine and habit. Um, so I, I tend to look at a minimal dose approach being one to two times a week. But in terms of recommendations, I tend to err towards um, twice a week. Um, and I think that's in keeping with what the evidence suggests is, is um, optimal. Any more than that is unnecessary. Um, and potentially you start getting to the point where depending upon the volume of sessions and the effort as well, um, there could be overtraining as well, particularly in a clinical population. So th this is interesting because there's a lot of um, interesting evidence in the weight management lit literature in terms of how quickly people need to say, see changes to uh, kind of sustain their exercise program, particularly in weight loss. Like how quickly do you need to see weight loss to, to maintain the program? So we're, we're obviously talking about body composition changes and muscle strength and hypertrophy. Is what's is there a time course of change then? If you're doing three days a week versus one day a week, are there times where maybe we would try to start with a more rigorous or more frequent program, and then phase out towards kind of the the, the minimal dose? So I think that, that's a really good question. I think the I, I I don't really think we've necessarily got any kind of hard and fast research to support any recommendations around around this. But I think um, just purely from a practical perspective. Um, because, as you said, you know, the, when you're looking at a minimal dose-based approach, you have to ensure that the quality of the stimulus is there. And that quality seems based primarily around um, ensuring that there's adequate intensity of effort in the exercise bouts. The problem is, when you're taking someone, particularly in a cl clinical population, who's possibly been sedentary and they're unfamiliar with performing any kind of exercise, if you suddenly throw them into even a low frequency and low volume of training, but at a high intensity of effort they may not react quite well to it. They may not like it. Um, you know, most uh, high effort exercise, although there are uh, variations which can produce it, will be associated with high levels of discomfort as well. Um, and so that can potentially have a negative impact on the effective response and their enjoyment of the exercise bout as well. So my, um, and actually, I, I, I forgot to mention this at the start. Um, we're, I'm currently actually involved in um, some work around um, in the exercise oncology space, um, an organization called Greater Manchester Cancer has got a large pot of funding to deliver exercise prehabilitation and rehabilitation for um, uh, a variety of different um, cancer populations that are undergoing surgical treatment. Very cool. um, so uh, Ian's involved in that as well as uh, um, some uh, colleagues at Manchester Metropolitan. Brilliant. Um, looking at designing the exercise interventions and also how we're going to potentially evaluate um, the um the outcomes in those patients as well um and so we, we actually had a meeting a couple of weeks ago to to kind of discuss the um you know an evidence-based yet pragmatic approach to how the exercise should be formulated because actually 
Um, in terms of the time frames over which they've got to implement this exercise, they in essence have three weeks with which to deliver an intervention from uh, uh, being referred for surgery to them actually, you know, ending up on the table and, and undergoing that surgery. Um, and so we, we talked about this idea of, of a progressive introduction to higher intensities of effort in which you can initially start off with a higher frequency and volume over the first week and taper down both the frequency and volume, but increase the intensity of effort over the second week and into the third week. And then ensuring, obviously, that you have a sufficient period of time between the final session and them actually undergoing the surgery as well. So they've got time to recover from that bout of exercise. But from a practical perspective, it's really tough. And I think you 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 need to kind of take into account all these other kind of little um, components rather than necessarily just going, ah, well, this study suggested that this frequency was best. So let's go yeah. with this. Um, so, yeah, so it's a, it's, it's a really good que question. And uh, and that's where the kind of art of it comes in a little bit as well. Yeah. And it's I'm really glad you mentioned this whole idea of affect. So affect obviously not obviously but affect relates to this idea of pleasure or displeasure in response to a stimulus and what we're talking about is exercise so there's really you know fairly strong evidence that indicates that the initial the affective response or the amount of pleasure someone or enjoyment someone gets out of a session or displeasure is very indicative or predictive of how well they will stay active or continue to participate in activity so from a behavior change perspective in clinical populations, even outside of, you know, outside of treatment, you're looking at long-term behavior change, critical that those first few sessions are primarily centered from a behavior change perspective, are centered around enjoyment and making sure they're comfortable. But you present a really interesting dynamic there and the challenge of prehab is not about long-term behavior change. It's about trying to to, to literally, again, maximize some sort of, uh, you know, level of fitness to where they can potentially buffer side effects. So it's interesting the parallels of how we look at, or even contrast to how we look at how to design programs based on that time course um, during or after treatment. Yeah, I, th I think in those circumstances where you're looking, for example, at um, prehabilitation prior to surgery, um, you know, that, that is probably a period of time where you, you not necessarily want to just kind of like throw the whole sort of like um, affective response, the enjoyment of the exercise and those kind of, you know, softer components um, out the window. But you, I think, you you know, it's obvious to both the clinician and probably the patient them, themselves as well that um, there are outcomes that need to be prioritized in that respect. And, you know, they're already going to be undergoing quite a, um, you know, grueling <laughs> treatment anyway. And so, so you know, you, you potentially got better buy-in to doing something that's not going to be quite so uh, so pleasant at that period of time. But certainly post-surgery as well, when it comes to the rehabilitation, you know, that and that's where you want to kind of really sort of like set in um, stone those behavioral change components and making sure that you set up something that they can continue doing, you know, long-term post-surgery as well. So that's when I think, you know, you need, really need to take uh, that into account. Um one interesting thing, though, though I, I'll just quickly touch on this because it reminded me because I reviewed a paper recently. Um, you know, the, the whole um, kind of um, what's termed as a dual mode theory uh, around um, exercise and the effective response is focused primarily around um, the role of effort in determining effective response. Um, and you know, my, my kind of perspective on that is I think there are some some potential limitations to um, the interpretation of studies that have looked at um, manipulating exercise 
conditions to result in different perceptions of effort and then looking at the effective response um, to those exercise bouts. Because, um, you know, we've done some work around this. One of the problems with traditional kind of rating of perceived exertion scales are that they don't necessarily differentiate between the perception of effort um, as in, you know, how much, uh, how essentially how difficult is it to meet the demands of what of the task you're trying to complete versus the other perceptions that are associated with attempting to meet those demands, like the discomfort, et cetera. And, and we've shown in um, uh, a number of studies now that you can produce conditions of exercise which result in the same effort, um, particularly if you anchor it as maximal. So for example, in resistance training, if you get people to perform as many repetitions as they can to momentary failure, um, you know, by definition, they, they're, they're at a point of maximal effort there. But manipulating the load of the exercise can result in very, very different responses in terms of how much discomfort they experience during that exercise as well. And my suspicion is that the effective response in most people is probably more related to the um, the discomfort associated with the exercise as opposed to the effort required. That's not to say that people aren't um, can't be aversive to the effort as well and, and perceive that as um, you know kind of negative in terms of their effective valence. Um, but on the whole, I would anticipate that the majority of people um, uh, dislike the discomfort as opposed to disliking the uh, the effort. Um, and there's actually some interesting data from uh, Jeremy Lernecki's uh, lab and his group. Um, I don't know if you saw the, the paper they published last year, which was um, on practicing the one repetition maximum test versus um, performing yeah. higher volume yeah. training. So, so they had a, had some secondary data that came out of that study as well, which where they actually looked at the effective responses to the uh, one rep max uh, kind of training versus the kind of higher volume um, to failure training. Um, you know, and one rep max by definition, again, is maximal effort um, as are performing sets to failure. Um, but they tended to find that there were more positive, effective responses to the uh, one rep max condition versus the uh, more fatiguing kind of sets to failure. And so it seems to me that like fatigue, the discomfort associated with that fatigue um, is more uh, is probably and I think, you know, we still need research to kind of conf uh, test this idea. It's probably the thing that's more influential in terms of discomfort, uh, in terms of effective response. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, I, I worked with, you know, my PhD was a Brian Fault at Ohio State who who kind of uh, him and Sean Arndt did a lot of the early work in the 2000s of the effective response to acute resistance exercise. And it mm. it is almost an easy um, criticism of kind of the sample sizes and that and how you you know if what variables you're manipulating, and then when you go down to sit down and actually design a study that's aimed at this, I mean it's it's a nightmare trying to figure out what variables variables to control, um, and it, it's just there's so many pieces that go into things that could ultimately affect the the response and even environment. You know what I mean? Like, so Fault has done a couple of really cool indoor versus outdoor environments. But even you come back to like windows in your lab versus not, and the environment mm -hmm. that you're building in there, all of that comes down to the effective response. So we're trying to figure out on a nitty gritty level how you specifically manipulate the exercise. But there's a lot of other things that can affect it as well. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you know, it's 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 likely a very inter individual response as well. There's going to be a lot of day-to-day um, -day variation um, purely because of just other confounding factors that we, you know you can't control um, it's it's a really kind of uh, uh, messy thing to look at um, 
I think, you know, we, we, one of the ideas I'd like to do, which is one of our kind of next steps is, you know, we've, we've done a number of studies now showing that we can, you know, we can produce similar conditions of, of perceived effort and yet produce different perceptions of discomfort. So the next step now will be to see whether or not those conditions elicit different effective responses um, to see whether or not, you know, potentially if you match effort, you get different effective responses based upon the discomfort. Um, but even in those, uh, you know, what, I, I guess we can kind of come on to this point now of what we mean by by effort, because, um, you know, I uh, uh, another great example is um, is a study a few years back with Winchester and colleagues that looked at even the um, the audience um, that are watching uh, someone perform exercise can influence um, you know, the rating of perceived effort that you get uh, from the exercise. So they had a study where they had uh, males run on a treadmill. They performed a kind of fixed, absolute demand about of exercise, and they either had them do it um, with a male audience or a female audience. And uh, you know, of course, their their RPE was lower with the female audience. Now, I always think that's an interesting study because I see people <laughs> cite it saying that the, um, the 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 audience affected their perception of effort, whereas. I suspect it really affected their reporting of their yeah. perception of effort. Yeah. Whether so, so look at it and I think it's a nice example of kind of separating out what it actually is we're talking about. And um, yeah, this is something that that um, I've been discussing with uh, Ben Peugeot and Sam Marcora, and and, um, and we've been having wider discussions with interdisciplinary uh, 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 colleagues in other disciplines. Um, so, for example, uh, Mickey Inslick, uh, he's a cognitive neuroscientist who um, has done some work on what's called the effort paradox. Um, and it's interesting, in, in cognitive neuroscience, you know, they have have kind of fixed definitions of what they refer to as being like effort. Um, and perception of effort is essentially our kind of conscious interpretation of that. Whereas like effort itself, if we think about it in terms of just the demands of the exercise relative to our ability to meet those demands, is it almost a kind of separate abstract entity in and of itself. We then perceive what is required to, to meet those demands, which may or may not be an accurate reflection of what those demands actually are. And then we also are asking participants to give a rating of that and hoping that they're being honest about it. <laughs> uh, so that there's all these kind of like steps. And, and, and I, I find it a really interesting puzzle because it, there, there, are, there are lots of things that I, I'm interested in, questions around that. It's, you know, how do we define effort? How do we manipulate effort, actual effort? And then what impact does that actual effort have on um, behavior, um, adaptation, et cetera? But then also the perception of that effort. What impact does the, ha, how accurate is the perception of that effort in terms of what the actual effort is? Um, how does the perception of effort, even independently of the actual effort, affect all these things? And that there are all these kind of questions that layer on top yeah. of one another that become really, really difficult to try and um, and sort of answer. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Um, even, you know, come back to kind of like value expectation and, and when they're reporting this and how much do they think it's important to be as accurate? And so I was... Uh, <laughs> I tell people I used to work for the Columbus crew. I, sh I did clean the protein shakers for a year, but uh, I was <laughs> strength and conditioning intern with the Columbus crew, and um, they, we had daily, um, you know, uh, subjective scales of uh, sleep quality, uh, all that type of stuff. 
And these guys every day come in and just stick a five on because it got to the point where it was too frequent and they didn't see the yeah. value and they didn't see any changes. So it also brings back into this idea of, of making sure that they understand the value of it and, and maybe there's a frequency perspective there in, in delivering this information and getting it from them. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, you know, there, there are so many things, even the instructions around the scales are really important as well. And, you know, I've been quite critical, for example, around the RPE, traditional Borg RPE scales, because most of the descriptors um, can be interpreted kind of colloquially by a lot of people as being referring to elements of which I would probably use discomfort as being a more accurate term. Um, particularly uh, when it comes to their applications and resistance training, they use um, descriptors that refer to the perception of load and how heavy the actual items being lifted are, not necessarily the effort. So they're useful if you're doing kind of single lifts, but once you start to introduce fatigue and then um, you know the, the, the perception of load can still be the same. Gavin Buckingham has done some really nice, uh, nice work on the size weight illusion and uh, you can quite clearly see in some of his uh, his work that people can differentiate between how heavy items feel um, and how much effort is required to actually lift them as being kind of almost two separate uh, perceptions. Um, and, and, you know, we've shown the same applies for discomfort. So the, there's all these kind of different um, perceptions that people experience during exercise. Um, and I think they all kind of uniquely can inter uh, in their own individual ways, influence the effective response that people have to exercise. Um, and another interesting question would be, um, you know, to what extent are these individual kind of perceptions contributing to the effect, the overall effective response? And is there one that is more or less kind of weighted in terms of that net effective response? Um, or, you know, how do people kind of allocate um, their kind of valuation of uh, of these different kind of perceptions as well to kind of form that net effective response. Uh, it all gets really messy <laughs> and complicated. <laughs> How does that differ amongst, um, is there any um, age, sex, or maybe training status differences amongst what you're seeing in this kind of effort model? Um, so far, at least in terms of what we've, we've looked at, we haven't really... Um, seen anything kind of that sticks out as saying there are certain populations that um that, that really kind of differ in terms of the, the, this this model particularly when we're looking at the way i've kind of explained which is differentiating um what the actual effort required is and, and manipulating tasks based upon that and so that we can kind of understand what people's perceptions of that effort are um I, I'll give you some, an interesting example. We um, I didn't, we did a, a study with some colleagues in Germany, um, which we published a couple of years ago now, 2017, I think, um, where we looked at people's ability to predict uh, repetitions to failure. Um, and that was done in a large sample of participants with um, a range of different um, uh, levels of experience. So it ranged from sort of like literal, like untrained newbies to um, I think the max, uh, the group um, with the highest experience hadn't had over two and a half years of uh, resistance training experience. Um, and it looked as though um, cross-sectionally there was a kind of slight increase in terms of their ability to predict how many reps they could do to failure. Um, and so, you know, therefore from our kind of model um, accurately gauge and perceive what the actual effort required to, to engage in those conditions actually was. Um, but we've recently, we've, we've, we've 
currently working on publishing it at the moment. We've got two deception studies where um, we've uh, essentially told participants that we're kind of um, we're assessing the reliability of uh, what we've termed the self-determined repetition max, which is um, telling people to stop one rep short of failure. So they've done the maximum number of complete repetitions they think they could do. Um, but in those conditions, because they don't try the next rep once they think they've got the max, they don't actually know whether they've got to failure or they've got to a, 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 um, a self-determined rep max or not, because unless they try the next rep, they never know whether they could have completed it. Um, so really, it's their kind of closest prediction to how close they can get to failure without actually failing um, versus the uh, between day reliability for uh, conditions where they actually went to failure. Um, and so we recruited subjects um, thinking that they were doing a reliability study when what we were really doing was actually comparing the uh, the predictions to their actual reps, <laughs> uh, uh, repetition maximum from the set to failure. Uh, so we did a couple of replications of that with, with two slightly different designs. And um, interestingly, when we use that kind of model uh, of uh, um, rather than the kind of previous one where we got people to just predict it and then got them to do a set. So it was their predictions were probably based on past experience. Um, we found that, that you know, people were just under predicting by way more than we would have liked them to. <laughs> um, I think I think off the, off the top of my head, it was something like like an average of like two and a half repetitions uh, um, out in terms of their accuracy of prediction. Um, I'd have to look up the actual values to try and remember exactly. That's but yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was pretty bad. Um, <laughs> so what, you know, obviously when we're, we're doing all this stuff, we have to have the, the bigger picture stuff. So where, where do you see this going and what do you hope to come out of it in terms of this effort based, uh, maybe it isn't an effort based prescription or, or, you know, what are you hoping to get out of kind of this broader area research? Okay, that, that is a really good question because I've been asked this before because some of the stuff that <laughs> we're doing, I think, it, 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 I, I think a lot, some of the, the kind of questions I've been rolling around in my head and kind of tackling with can seem a bit um, almost like toy problems. Like they're not, it's hard to see what the kind of ultimate application in terms of, um, you know, say, say public health approaches to physical activity, clinical approaches, uh, clinical applications of exercise, et cetera. Um, but I think there's a necessity to really nail down some of these, some of the, def the, the actual variables we're interested in, what our definitions of those are, um, how, you know, making sure we agree upon those, making sure we agree upon how to measure them accurately and stuff before we can really sort of move out to, to um, understanding what the impact of those variables are and then starting to think about the applications. Um, so I think on one end of the spectrum, there, there's, you know, I, I really want to sort of nail down a um, a real kind of scientific um, objective kind of understanding of these things at a basic le level. On the other end of the spectrum, though, in terms of like, you know what is the kind of ultimate goal, um, I think one of, one of the things I've certainly or I perceive there to be is because um, now, now a lot I, I find I'm involved more and more in um, the public health end of the spectrum, and the the public health um, academics. And those who work, um, you know, within public health um, organisations and, uh, and you know, government organisations and so on, that there's this acceptance that already uh, physical activity is, is good de facto. You know, nothing else needs to be said on that. And so the approach has shifted towards just how do we get people more physically active? And it's almost like they've completely 
forgotten about the idea of what we were talking about at the start, which is what is the actual dose of physical activity. And maybe that's not entirely fair because they do to an extent think about the uh, potentially volume of exercise. Um, you know, most of the, the physical activity guidelines are based around accruing a minimum volume. And there's some, you know, uh, reference to the quote unquote intensity of effort in terms of moderate to vigorous physical activity. The problem is all of this is done in such a kind of simplistic manner that it seems to me as though there, there is um, a shift towards getting people to do anything and every, uh, you know, anything we can get them to do. And my worry is that because there is no focus on the quality of the exercise stimulus or the physical activity that people are engaging in, that we're going to get to a point where we just figure out what people like to do is something that's not particularly effective in terms of producing the health outcomes and, and things that we want. Now, that's not to say that's the only reason to engage in physical activity and exercise. But I think if if um, if people got you know, it, it, hypothetically, if, if everyone got more active and everyone was, you know, just, uh, I don't know, uh, achieving a kind of minimal level of light, low intensity of effort, physical activity, um, not really enough for the majority of the population, except those who are most deconditioned and sedentary already to really gain any kind of health and well-being outcomes from it. But everyone felt a little bit better. Everyone was a little bit happier. Um, but yet people were still suffering from chronic disease and et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I, I'm not sure many people would look at that and go like, oh, yeah, that was a really successful uh, physical activity <laughs> campaign. You know, we've really, um, you know, uh, got the most out of what we can, can there. So, so my kind of um, thoughts are we I, I want to get to a point where we can try and figure out what is the um, what is the dose of physical activity that is going to be going to maximize um, uh, effectiveness? So what is the, um, the dose that's going to translate um, efficacy into the most effectiveness when we get to that kind of population le level? Because some of the exercise interventions that we think will be most efficacious when we look at them under kind of controlled, supervised settings where we know that people are performing the exercise in the way we expect them to do it, uh, in the dose that we've prescribed, um, w they won't always translate into making recommendations to do that and everyone actually following them. So we need to find that kind of middle gra ground, which maximizes the effort that people are willing to engage in to maximize the health outcomes. Um, so really, that's kind of the, the approach. And I think people need to pay more attention to um, the effort required. Um, and rather than just going, it's hard, people don't like it, therefore, we're going to focus on how to get more people walking. Um, we should be also saying, well, why don't we try and figure out approaches to try and see, see what people are willing to do in terms of higher effort exercise? It's funny. Um, so I was um, uh, researching a lot of your papers and going more in depth as we were prepping for this. And I found your uh, paper, the higher effort paradigm for public health. I actually reviewed that paper and I remember Did you? it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Excellent. it. Excellent. And it was all thumbs up. I was like, this is unbelievable. You know, this is stuff that, because, you know, hot take or controversial opinion, I was disheartened to see the new guidelines for his activity drop to 10 minutes. And just again, it's kind of like, it, it's funny because we're talking about minimal effective dose and like, well, if they're not going to do anything, encourage the 10 minutes. But at the same time, you hit the nail on the head there with, with, there's a certain level that we just have to say, like, 
it might be hard, but if you do this really high quality work for a little bit, you can chill then. Whereas we keep dropping the bar, and mm. it's 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 the equivalent of, of saying, well, we just now decided that BMI is for obesity is now forty, so no one's really obese anymore. <laughs> like we can't <laughs> we can't just arbitrarily change our requirements for what's effective. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can get into a whole debate about it, but you know, it's it's just such an interest battle that I have in my own head in in how that public health message goes out. I, I think what we need is we need more public health uh, academics who are clued up on just fundamental kind of basic principles of exercise physiology, um, and at the same time, we need more exercise physiologists who are more clued up on uh, you know elements of behaviour change and public health interventions and, and so on. Um, so. One interesting thing is um, the the new guidelines, CMO guidelines in the UK should be coming out um, at some point this year. Um, and uh, I was involved in the um, adult uh, expert working group and, and reviewed the majority of the literature that went into um, the reports regarding resistance training recommendations. And I say resistance training recommendations because, as you know from that paper, I don't like the idea of calling them quote-unquote muscle strengthening activities because uh, I... I I, I've yet to see a meta-analysis on the effects of gardening for improving muscle strength, <laughs> <laughs> or even, or even just a, a you know a single-arm prospective trial <laughs> yeah. with ten people. Um, so uh, there, there is there's going to be more emphasis, or, or we we've argued that the CMOs should place more emphasis on um, the uh, the resistance training component, um, whether or not that. All of this goes into, you know, these are our recommendations to them with respect to what they should make the recommendations. Um, the uh, the focus is on providing more specificity about what people should do and what the quality of that should be. And it fits in very well with the kind of minimal dose approach that uh, we've talked about. Um, there's also going to be the inclusion um, that, uh, or we, we've, we've argued that there should be the inclusion of high intensity interval training based approaches as well as an option. Um, which I don't think the Americans included in their latest um, latest one. I think they, they um, excluded that. Um, but that's we've argued that, that should potentially go in as an addition, um, because part of the part of it comes down to increasing reach as well. Because, admittedly, there are some people who aren't necessarily going to want to do you know what would be quote unquote optimal, um, and getting them to do anything is probably better than nothing. Um, but it's like you say, it's almost this like lowering of the bar. If we just keep on lowering it, lowering it, lowering it, eventually we can say everyone's meeting the guidelines. But then at some <laughs> point, the guidelines don't really mean a lot. Um, and that's not to say that low, uh, you know, poor, do low, low doses in terms of both volume, frequency and uh, quality uh, are not not uh, are not better than doing nothing. Um, but it's to say that we should have some like bar that we're aiming for. Um, in terms of what we would what we would really want people to be doing, and then efforts should be being made to try and push people towards that. And um, it was interesting. The the Dutch recently did their uh, review their guidelines as well, and uh, we had an interesting talk from uh, one of the uh, Dutch team um, uh, last year, and she made the point that. Um, they almost don't care whether or not the Dutch people know what the guidelines are because the gui the guidelines are almost just a, a set of kind of like, uh, they're almost like a yardstick to say, right, this is what we think people should be doing. 
Um, and now what we've got to do is try and implement interventions to try and get people towards that goal and then assess to see whether on a population level, you know, we're achieving those standards. Um, the people that we're using interventions to kind of push towards meeting that goal don't necessarily need to know that that's what they're, they're being pushed towards. Um, some people will respond well to, to, to providing recommendations and they'll, you know, but they need to be very self-motivated. There's a lot of, you know, unique individual factors that go into that. Other people you know, may not. So uh, th this is where we need to kind of set the, the guidelines based around what is the optimal dose of, uh, of, act of exercise physical activity people should be doing. And then the intervention should be focused on how to deliver that dose or get people to engage in that dose. Not that the guidelines themselves should be focused on how they're messaging it, because that might affect, the, you know, whether or not people agree with them or follow them or things like that. It's almost like you could you could not put out. Um, yeah, that's it's. I like that approach. It it does a good job of maintaining the standards of. It takes what it takes. It takes what it takes to achieve, you know, improvements in in whatever outcome you're interested in. But then the implementation of that is is a completely different issue. And it, that's a really nice way of maintaining the standards, but also trying to work on the, the, the other piece of it as well. Um, that I like that a lot. So the other part of all this, well, I suppose when we're talking about, so what effort should we do? So if you say, give me a quality session that you're talking about. So when you're saying they need to have a quality effort session, what, what, is, what is that? That's a great question. So, you know, our, our kind of model effort model is based around a kind of top anchor of max effort is essentially doing as much as you can based on whatever the demands are. So if, for example, you were taking a resistance training session, you could, uh, you know, well, we know based upon the literature that um, assuming you train to failure, which under this model is, is a max effort. So doing as many repetitions as you as you can um, under the you know form that's being prescribed for the exercise. Um, that you can select a heavy load, a light load, a moderate load, whatever you want. The, the outcomes are going to be largely similar, um, even in terms of strength, unless you're thinking about strength specifically as being a one repetition max. Um, light loads, heavy loads, moderate loads will improve, for example, uh, Mac, uh, MVC um, similarly. Um, so the load doesn't really matter, um, but you should be aiming to, to try and get as close to, to momentary failure as possible. So doing as many repetitions as you can. Now, this is where I think it's good to say people should aim for that um, because in reality, unless people are highly motivated and people are potentially supervised, it's hard to get there. Um, there are ways of making it easier to get there, which is to say if you pick a heavier load, uh, you're more likely to uh, reach failure because um, you're less likely to experience discomfort, which will cause you to cease exercise um, prematurely. Um, so you can kind of try and manipulate the outcome, the um, the load of the exercise to try and reduce discomfort and try and maximize uh, effort. Um, in terms of volume within the session, you know, we've, um, uh, I think the majority of, of evidence would support that single sets of, um, of exercises are, um, are more than adequate to produce improvements in, in strength, hypertrophy, et cetera. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, a relatively low volume of approach of uh, sort of five to 10 sets Per muscle group per week can be adequate for that. Um, in terms of exercise selection, you know, we've published a lot of studies suggesting that uh, for both the upper and lower body now, there used to be not a lot of literature on the lower body, but in terms of lower body as well, um, 
focusing on multi-joint exercises um, should be the priority because they can produce very similar um, adaptations um, compared to multi-joint plus single joint exercises as well. Um, so you can reduce the amount of um, exercises you need to do by focusing on um, on multi-joint exercises which target multiple muscles in, in one exercise. Um, as we said in our kind of like in a minimal dose paper, which was aimed at kind of exercise prescription for the elderly, um, and I think this this applies to younger adult populations as well in terms of like a minimal dose. Really, you know, you should be including a, an upper body pushing movement like a chest press um, or an, an overhead press, um, an upper body pulling movement like a, a pull down or a seated row, um, and a lower body uh, compound movement, multi joint movement like a leg press um, or potentially a deadlift. Um, you know, you can kind of pick and choose what exercise you want based upon orthopedic limitations and, and other, you know, preferences and, and things like that. But but focusing on a kind of core set of, of those um, exercises, you know, kind of one upper, uh, to an upper body push, an upper body pull and a lower body multi-joint exercise. You know, really, that's kind of your core kind of essential minimal dose. Uh, within session, a single set of each of those exercises. And you can add in other ones as well to try and up the volume ever so slightly. Um, and, and for example, if you were doing, um, you know, say a chest press, uh, a, uh, uh, an overhead press, a seated row, a pull down, um, you know, or, or free weight versions of these, it doesn't need to be on machines. It can be free weights, it can be body weight. It really makes little difference. Um, and, uh, you know, possibly like a, a leg press or a squat and a deadlift or a, uh, um, or, or, or um, like a trunk extension based movement, um, you know, and performing that twice a week, you're kind of hitting what, you know, kind of evidence based guidelines are around uh, weekly volume in terms of approximately 10 sets per muscle group per week, um, frequency twice a week, um, the volume within those sessions, you know, one set per exercise, um, and the quality of those sets in terms of trying to push yourself to a maximal effort, which by our model is kind of training to momentary failure that point where you know despite trying as hard as you can you can no longer continue performing the exercise and the key there is really sort of like attempting to perform it so every time you complete a repetition my, my kind of coaching cue when i whenever i'm working with uh, uh you know uh, participants in studies is is to you know essentially say to them every time you complete a rep attempt the next one and unless you attempt the next one you don't know whether you've actually got to failure or not yet um and so, so that works as quite a useful cue, I think, because people will then, um, if they're training unsupervised and on their own, they've at least got that idea of like every time they complete a rep, like just try the next one, just try it and see if you can do it. And if you can do it, just try the next one, um, which which I think is, is is quite useful in terms of getting people to push themselves, uh, you know, as close to sort of max effort as they can. What's interesting, because you talk, you talk about like, this this whole idea of the minimal dose approach, I think the the exercise selection is most in, not most interesting, but yeah, whatever, it's most interesting to me, um, because coming back to either preference or efficacy, you see people doing you know some some tricep pull downs or bicep curls with six pounds, and and really in terms of what people in older adults or clinical populations are interested in, feeling good, feeling strong, feeling fit, it's not adding much except for time you know as, as you kind of eloquently put in the paper you can program stuff to to try and correct imbalances and fix movement patterns and things like that but in terms of improving lean body mass how much is a 65 year old man going to get out of 
bicep curls on top of what he's already getting out of, you know, a, a yeah. strong multi-joint program. Absolutely, absolutely. And also, again, coming back to behavior change, if they know that they only have to go in and nail these five exercises instead of looking at a list of seven to nine, you know, there's a potential for, for them to, you know, be more drawn to that other the kind of simpler program. Yeah, I think as well from, you know, focusing around um, effort rather than the kind of, you know, traditional kind of complex, you know, esoteric recommendations that you see from from other, you know, traditional kind of uh, um, textbooks, etc. Um, you know, the it, it, from my perspective, I think it, it widens the possible reach of these types of interventions, because like we said, you know, you, load doesn't matter. So you could go in and you could, you could do gun out press-ups, as many press-ups as you could if you want. You don't have to go in the gym and, and ben do bench press or use a chest press or whatever. You could do press-ups, pull-ups or, or um, you know, rows using a towel hung over your door or, you know, whatever you want. You, you, you can do it at home. You can do it at the gym. You can go to the park and do it. You know, focusing on the quality of the exercise stimulus in terms of the effort um, means that it opens up the uh, range of options for how to apply it uh, from my perspective. Um, and, and of course, you know, in a lot, lot of situations that you, you, you're going to want to try and do it in an environment where you know that there is someone who's on hand to potentially provide you with advice and on form, etc. Um, you know, try and reduce risk of injury. Um, and and some people, you know, prefer to do it in like a gym environment. You know, I, I spent like three years just training at home doing bodyweight stuff. And um, and it's only been in the last year or so that I've actually got back into like training regularly, like in a commercial gym. And it took me like six months to get used to it. Like I hated it, waiting for equipment <laughs> and, uh, you know, seeing people just like chatting while sat on machines is just uh it's taken a while to get back used to that rather than the, uh, like I can be done in 15 minutes in my lounge. <laughs> it, it's interesting. So what are your thoughts then on if you take effort into this equation, this whole idea of, um, you know, maybe machine versus free weights and the difference in uh, muscle stimulation or potentially muscle damage and, and subsequent adaptation, how then would effort or would effort differ, you know, amongst say, uh, push-ups to failure, chest press versus uh, barbell bench press in terms of the, the stimulus you're getting from the exercise and then the, the subsequent effort with that? So so if you're going to failure in either of those exercises, you know, by definition, you're, you're going to a maximum effort. You're getting to the point where, you know, you try as hard as you can, you can't complete the exercise, you know, at least based on the way we're defining it, that, that, that's maximum effort. So the effort would be similar. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll rephrase that as perhaps a barbell bench press would be in terms of uh, maybe quicker getting to that maximum effort so more efficient oh yeah yeah absolutely and and, and really it comes you can draw a similar parallel in terms of just heavy loads and light loads um you know for most people uh or well i i say for most people maybe not for most people but for, for at least some portion of people um you know a push-up is going to be a relatively light load um whether it's on the knees or a full press up or whatever um, and it could be likened to going in and doing a light load bench press. If you go to failure, um, there, there's actually a couple of studies which have uh, looked at comparing um, uh, hypertrophy and strength adaptations uh, for bench press versus press ups when matched for, for volume and, uh, and effort and shown very, very similar adaptations. Um, 
the, 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 it comes back to the discussion we had earlier, though. Light loads to failure are pretty uncomfortable. Like they, they burn, they ache, and um, and so for someone who um, who's pretty strong already, and a body weight based exercise would be a relatively light load. Um, you're gonna experience a greater degree of discomfort, and you might not like it. In which case, um, you might prefer to go in and do a bench press. But yeah, absolutely. In terms of just the um, the efficiency of actually how long it takes you to get to that point of max effort, heavier loads, um, and if you can add heavy, uh, you know, uh, manipulate the exercise in such a way as to increase the load, that will be a more efficient approach to getting to a high effort stimulus. And I think, you know, it almost comes down to this kind of like what the bodybuilders have done for ages, which is this kind of moderate rep range. Not going too light because it's horrible. Um, <laughs> not going not going too heavy because people get worried about injuries and so on. And, you know, there, there's a lack of data on that. But I think it's a legitimate concern, at least, you know, if you drop a heavy weight, it's more likely to hurt you than if you drop a light weight. <laughs> yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, that, that's just physics. Um, <laughs> But, uh, you know, a kind of moderate rep range, uh, you know, eight to 12 reps is, is, you know, it doesn't make a difference in terms of the adaptations, but in terms of efficiency and minimizing discomfort and so on, it's a pretty good rep range to work within. You've uh, done an outstanding job of outlining all these concepts. Um, and I, I can't thank you enough for this chat. It's been, it's been really interesting for me. Let's finish with um, a few down and dirty tips. It, it's in terms of program design. Um, talking about like moving away from this kind of esoteric, overcomplicated approach. What is your what are your tips in saying right? Someone walks into my clinic tomorrow, untrained, uh, previous or you know say sedentary. Um, what what are you looking to do and how do you look to design a program? So, well, what have I got in my clinic? Exactly. That okay. So uh, let's make the assumption we got nothing. um so uh let's give us give us a little uh standard standard hospital clinic you got a leg press leg extension leg curl you know you got some you got some decent equipment to work with yeah okay well in that case you know i'd start them off on literally uh, a chest press a pull down and a leg press um i'd you know spend some time in the first session teaching them the appropriate form figuring out what load we're going to use with them, um, you know, based on, um, you know, both their kind of preferences, any orthopedic limitations, etc. cetera. Um, and, and I would start them off on a really simple free exercises, chest press, pull down, leg press. I'd probably start them off with uh, more than one set on those exercises initially because it gives them more time to practice the actual form of the exercise, get used to how it feels. And then I would gradually start to increase the effort and reduce the number of sets they're performing until eventually you can get to the point where they can perform a single good quality set to failure on each of those exercises maybe with a warm-up set uh, before that as well. And I think you can do that over a period of time. You can start them off with a kind of fixed number of repetitions, say, you know, get them to do, use a weight that 10 repetitions feels pretty comfortable on um, and do maybe three sets of 10 on that. And then once you feel that their form's down and they can start increasing the effort, you maybe drop it down to two sets and get them to do uh, reps to a self-determined rep max. So say, you know, keep going until you think if you tried the next one, you wouldn't be able to do it get them to do that for a little bit, get used to the increase in effort, and then eventually get to the point where we say, right, now, next time, what we want you to do is we want you to do one good set, and when you get to that point where you think if you you couldn't, if you tried it, you couldn't do the next one, I want you to try it, and every time you, you complete one, I want you to try the next one. 
get them to that point where you can get them with good form, good controlled repetitions, really eking out that maximal effort. And at that point, you'll have them where really they only need to be getting in there twice a week and doing a set of chest press, set of pull down, set of leg press. And that's pretty much a good minimal core in that context for them. That's really cool. Um, I, I appreciate your chat and I appreciate your insight and all your work in this space. Um, and you're very active online and sharing a lot of your information. Where can people find you? Uh, so I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, my um, uh, handle is uh, at James Steele II. That's James uh, Steele, S-T-E-E-L-E, I-I. It's supposed to be James Steele II because my dad's called James Steele as well. <laughs> nice. I, I, <laughs> that, that stuck for years. Um, uh, people can email me either at uh, my university address or uh, my UK active address. The university is james.steel at solent.ac.uk. And my UK active address is James Steel, or one word, at ukactive.org.uk. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're probably the two main places to get me. Uh, I've got a ResearchGate account as well where I try and keep um, I try and keep it as up to date as possible with uh, research, new preprints. Um, there's loads of great work on there from my PhD students, collaborators that we work with as well um, on a whole range of, of things like i said i've lost my discipline recently and i seem to be involved <laughs> in lots of different projects and um, but all, all of our kind of resistance training based work is uh, is uh, on my research gate as well and if there's if there's something that's not there drop me an email and i can send it sweet sweet mate i really appreciate your time and all the best with all your undisciplinary work <laughs> awesome thanks for having me on karen <laughs>